please have a seat. Well, tonight we're starting a new series in Ephesians, and I think you'll find it on page 917 or 918 in your uh, church Bibles there. But you know, when looking at some of the commentaries written on Ephesians, it's impossible not to notice all the superlatives that the writers seem to ascribe to this letter. The Scottish theologian William Barclay calls Ephesians the queen of the epistles. I think by that he means that Romans must be the king of the epistles, although he doesn't say in that paragraph. Another Scotsman, John Mackay, who was to become the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, was converted at the age of 14 after reading Ephesians. And he said that for the modern day, it was the greatest, the most mature, and the most relevant of all of Paul's letters. But aside from the superlatives, I think we shouldn't overlook the simple clarity of this letter. The letter to the Ephesians is the most profound, not because of the deep secrets that it actually confronts us with, but instead for the clear and easily understood the ways that it presents the Christian truths. For example, there is nothing that we find in Ephesians that is not taught elsewhere. One commentator, B.F. Westcott, counted 27 distinct doctrines in Ephesians, ranging from God the Father, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the world and creation, evil powers and the devil, to the church, sacraments, and church ministry. And still, as he says, not one of those doctrines is unique to Ephesians. And secondly, it's also true that there is no historically unique dating of Ephesians. I mean, there are no false teachers troubling the church, such as we find in Galatians and Corinthians, or there are no internal strife, such as we find in Philippians. And the fact is, the specific circumstances that lay behind those letters might produce in us a, a feeling that they may not be as important in our day. After all, we live far away from those times, and the issues that Paul raises may not relate precisely to our own circumstances today. And it may be easier for us to read those somewhat unattached. I mean, they are letters of divine truth, to be sure, but yet they may lack immediacy for today's readers. And those letters were written to Christians living in a very different time and place who were facing very specific circumstances. And I was thinking that may be why in Ephesians, Paul avoids a specific historical context. I mean, Ephesians could be written to any church, any community of Christians, at any time. There's nothing that actually places it in any context that is different from our own. In fact, for all we can tell, Paul might have written this to us here at Grace Church in Hammersmith just last week. And one of the things that actually struck me this week was in the first instance, if I had to make one comment about Ephesians, I would have to say that one of the things that struck me the most this week was that it is a book of prayer. Almost half of the letter is prayer. There are times when Paul recounts a prayer that he has prayed, and there are reports of prayer, there are requests for prayer, there are exhortations to pray. As an example, chapter 6, Paul asks for prayer, and he tells the Ephesian Christians exactly what he wants them to pray for him. Or chapter 3, he tells the Ephesians what he has been praying for them. In fact, even here in chapter 1, 
verses 3 to 14, we have a, a prayer of praise, which gives glory to God. And then the following verses, 15 to 23, Paul prays for God to grant specific blessing to his people, which includes every generation of believers, including us. And as we noted, in most of Paul's letters, we find that he selects an issue or a circumstance that he uses to build an argument for Christ. However, in Ephesians, he uses prayer to build this case. It's not his usual way. However, I think it appears to be intentional. I mean, we all understand the normal reaction for a person in the first instance to instinctively reject someone else's argument about something, no matter how good or factual it may be. It may be because our sinfulness and our pride makes our first reaction very often to put up our defenses and, and argue back. However, when someone says to you, I'd really like to pray for you, or would you mind if I prayed for you? It often has the opposite effect of bringing our defenses down. We feel like we're in the presence of someone who truly cares about us. And that seems to be Paul's objective here, to present the basic doctrines of faith in a way that makes us feel as if we're speaking to someone who loves us and truly has our best interests at heart. And that may be the reason why Ephesians has been so valued and loved by Christians since the day it was written. So firstly, Ephesians is a book of prayer, but secondly, Ephesians is also a book of evangelism. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul shows us the evangelistic work of God as Paul reveals God the missionary, as God sets about his redeeming work, as he creates his plan before the foundation of the world, and as he accomplishes his plan in the person of Jesus Christ, and as he applies his plan through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we find that it's God who reaches out to men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, and he redeems men and women in every generation through the saving work of the Lord Jesus. Paul then continues in chapters 3 and 4 to reveal that God intends to use these redeemed people to build his church. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he tells us that the church and its members have been given a great assignment, and that is to be ambassadors for Christ to be his witness to the world of his saving power and the only true way of, of salvation. So with that short introduction, let me pray for us, and I'm going to read the opening four verses of Ephesians, although we're going to focus on the verse two. So let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, you inspired your word, and well, we pray that by that same spirit, you would open our eyes to understand the truth of your word, that you would apply that truth to our hearts and lives so that we might respond to your word and change. And these things we ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Amen. Well, earlier I mentioned John Mackay, the 14-year-old who was called to faith while reading Ephesians in the Highlands. In later years, Mackay went on to write that what we read in Ephesians is truth that sings. It is doctrine set to music. And he explains that the truth found in Ephesians sets the heart singing because it sets the heart alight with love for God and an overwhelming desire to praise him. You see, Ephesians sets out in a clear and precise manner what was actually planned in the eternal counsels of God before the world began, before time itself even began. And we're told that what God has accomplished is through the saving and finished work of his son. And we see that it is still being accomplished in the world today through his spirit. And what we find is that God, as he builds this church, is building a new society in the midst of a dying society, in the midst of a dying world. It's a new order amongst the ruins of a, of a fallen world. And the idea of God's church is on virtually every page of Ephesians. And as we read about this new family, the, the people of God, well, it should affect the way that we view our lives in the world, and it should draw us to greater praise of God as we understand more fully what he has done for us. So if you have your Bibles open, look with me at the opening verses of chapter 1. In the first half of chapter 1, Paul begins by introducing himself as the author of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now Paul may be the human author, but he speaks with the authority of Christ Jesus and by the will of God. And the point is that the letter is not simply the words of a man. But these words are given to us by God. Paul is the writer of these words by the will and the appointment of Jesus Christ. And, and notice how he confirms his position as an apostle. We know from the scriptures that an apostle is someone who is specifically chosen and called to teach and write with the authority of God. The apostles had heard the words of Jesus firsthand. They had been called and commissioned by him personally, and they had been ordained to record the life and message of Jesus for all of the generations to follow. Actually, when Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he, he explained it like this. He said that he spoke to them in words, not taught by human wisdom, but in words taught to him by the Spirit. And we learned in the Gospels that Jesus had revealed many things to the apostles that he had not revealed to others. And Jesus had sent them out with his full authority to teach and to minister in his name. And Paul is saying here that he is one of them. He is an apostle. And we all remember that famous event in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus when Paul was called and commissioned and appointed by Jesus. So Paul is not simply a veteran preacher. He's not simply a missionary hero. His words are not those of an ordinary man. Instead, his words are the words of one who has been appointed by Jesus. Now, you may remember that the church was not too thrilled when the news of Saul, the persecutor, came that he had been called into service as the Apostle Paul. I mean, he had been an outspoken enemy of the church. And I think that's why Paul not only says that 
he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he adds that his apostleship is by the will of God. Therefore, one application of this introduction is that, well, we must take the book of Ephesians seriously because Paul is bringing this message directly to us from, from God, which means it's without error. The message speaks with authority. And that this is really a, a universal letter from Paul to Christians everywhere and, and always. Now, there's a second aspect that I believe Paul has on his mind, which is revealed in the prayer which follows in verses 3 to 23. In Paul's prayer, there is a great emphasis on God's sovereign electing grace. And as well as emphasizing the validity of his apostleship in this opening statement, it becomes clear that Paul is also thinking about how he became an apostle, not just that he was one. I mean, his statement there, by the will of God, points to the source of his apostleship. It's by God's will. In other words, without the gracious, sovereign, effectual call of God, Paul would have never become an apostle. In fact, he would have never even become a Christian. And as we know, up to this point in his conversion, up to the point of his conversion, Paul had, had lived apart from the grace of God. He was at war with God and left to his own devices. Paul had been persecuting the church and trying to crush the church into oblivion. But that's true of all of us, really, isn't it? I mean, until we are awakened to the gospel through God's sovereign grace, we are all opposed to the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce writes that the gospel is a wonderful thing. It is the word of life in Christ. But however wonderful the gospel may be, we would never have responded to it if God had not first called us from sin to Christ. Therefore, as we go through Ephesians over these next few weeks, we should be sure to relate everything that we read and we hear to God's grace. Because God called Paul. God called these Christians at Ephesus. And God, if we are truly Christian, he called us. Now, look with me at the second half of verse 1. Paul turns his attention from himself, the author of the letter, to those who would receive and read the letter. And he leaves us in no doubt to whom he is writing, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, as Paul writes to these Christians, we should note three things that are true of all Christians in every congregation, in every generation. Firstly, Christians are saints. Secondly, Christians are faithful. And thirdly, Christians are in Christ Jesus. Paul says Christians are saints. Notice in verse 1, he's writing to the saints. Now, in the Bible, the saints are the holy ones, those who have been set apart by God. And what Paul means is not what is meant by society in general or by the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is a particularly holy person a person who stands out to be exalted and even prayed to. The person must go through a process of selection by a panel of, of their peers, a panel of men. And if declared worthy of sainthood, well, they're canonized. And in our society, a, a particularly good person might be referred to as a saint. We hear it often, don't we? Oh, she's a real saint, or oh, he's, a, he's a saint of a man. However, these ideas are simply not found in our Bible. 
In the Bible, a saint is a person who has been set apart by God. Elsewhere, Paul describes a saint as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. He calls them children of light. He uses phrases like God's new creation by God's workmanship. In 1 Peter 2, another apostle, Peter, writes that the saints are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. And Paul says several times in Ephesians that saints are people who have been given and have experienced the grace of God. He says they are people who have been redeemed by Christ's blood, shed on the cross for them, and they are people who have been reconciled to God. They have had their sins forgiven. They've been granted salvation and sealed by the Holy Spirit with a guarantee of eternal life. You see, these are people who belong to the Christian brotherhood. They've been adopted into God's family and have become both his dearly loved children, sons and daughters, and members of his household. And most importantly, and this is the point, every Christian is a saint and every saint is a Christian. And every saint has been separated from the world, set apart, because they are the holy ones in God's sight. We as saints are holy in God's sight. And that's all true. But still at the same time, when we think about these Ephesian Christians, I think we can also be certain that they were still sinful people. They continued to fail in many ways. They, they lived unworthy of the grace they had received because their transformation at this stage was still incomplete. But notice that here in Ephesians, Paul doesn't deal with that side of the issue. Instead, he, he concentrates on setting out for us the positives of the Christian faith, the God-given traits and blessings that define a follower of Christ. Paul defines for us here the proper, the, the overriding, the dominant self-image that every Christian, that every saint should have of themselves, the right view of oneself. I mean, we all know from personal experience that we're not going to forget about our sinfulness, our unworthiness, our many failures, and we're not going to forget about the misery that we have brought upon ourselves and others in so many ways through our sin. Every saint knows he or she has plenty of reason to be humble. No saint needs to be reminded of the fact that we are sinners saved by grace and we have no legal claim on God's goodness. And here in Ephesians, Paul takes our awareness of that for granted. He doesn't chastise us. He, he leaves those things aside because he has a different focus, a different purpose. And his purpose is to define for us what we are as Christians. And although our old self, our, our fallen nature still exists, those things no longer define us. That is not what we must be known as first and last. Our sinfulness and our guilt are not our defining traits. I mean, those are traits that could be assigned to every human being, but as saints, that is no longer who we are. 
And Paul teaches that we should not have that view of ourselves. I mean, here in Ephesians, Paul describes Christians as they really are and how they must remember themselves to be holy, faithful, the children of God, the lovers of the Father, the objects of Christ's great love and redemption, members of Christ's body, heirs to eternal life. I mean, think about it. That's, that's a pretty exalted view of ordinary human beings, isn't it? But Christians are human beings who have been set apart by God himself. They're saints. They have been chosen. And that is Paul's view of you and me if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, if we are real Christians. Now, secondly, notice that Paul describes these saints as faithful. It stands to reason that all Christians believe in Jesus, that all Christians, having heard the gospel of God's grace, respond by exercising faith in him alone for their salvation. And as time passes, as we mature as Christians, we find that our faith becomes faithfulness. We then continue in faith, and our faithfulness becomes perseverance in the Christian life. And when we speak about the perseverance of the saints, well, we are usually referring to God's faithfulness to us, not ours to him. The idea that without God's faithfulness, none of us would ever be able to stand firm in the Christian life. And there's no doubt that that is absolutely true, but it's also right to say that because God perseveres with us, we must also persevere. We must actively, intentionally, consciously exercise faith and be faithful. Notice that Paul says we are faithful in Christ. That, faith, that phrase, uh, in Christ or in him, actually is found nine times in this first chapter alone. And I think this phrase is a sort of shorthand for Paul because what he has in mind when he writes in Christ is in union with Christ, that we are one with Christ. The saints have been personally and savingly and individually united to Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit, which means we have been made holy, so we are to pursue holiness. We have been granted faith, therefore we must grow in faithfulness. And we have been united to Christ, so we are able to depend on him and delight in his authority over us. And as we become more and more accomplished in holiness and faithfulness and obedience, well, we begin to express these things in our lives, in our relationships, in our homes, in our churches, in our world, which means we're not to remain isolated as individuals. We must get out there in the world because we have the job of building his church. We have the job of, of building a new society, a, a new humanity, and, and being his ambassadors to the world. You see, we're to be active and participate in this new community that is centered around Jesus. And it extends far past the values and the standards of the world. I mean, we are always to do this, but always with the awareness that when we forget who we are and what we are, when we become conformed to the world, then we allow the powers of the world to completely eviscerate the effectiveness of our witness. So when Paul says, you are saints, you are trusting in Christ, you are in Christ, you're united to him, that you're in the world but not of it, 
Paul is calling us to live out the realities of our sainthood, to bear witness to the world, but to not to be conformed to the wicked passing age in which we live. And that's because through our union with Christ, we are to live as his ambassadors in the world. Now lastly, there is, there is one further thing in these greetings that Paul wants us to understand, and that is the blessing of sainthood. Those precious and invaluable blessings that we receive as saints. In verse 1, not only do we learn something about the authority of this book from the description of its sender, the author, and not only do we learn what Christians are as we see the description of the recipients of this letter, but we also learn something about the invaluable and precious blessings that belong to all of us who trust in Christ. And we learn it from the greeting there in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, notice the two blessings which are declared upon you by Paul. Right at the start, grace to you and peace. That is God's grace. God's grace is saving grace. It's supernatural grace. It is, as we've said many times from this pulpit, it is completely undeserved. It is wholly unearned. And it is freely bestowed on us by God as a gift. And although it was expensively purchased, God in his mercy simply extended it to us in Jesus. And Paul is saying, I pronounce God's favor to be lavished on you in Christ Jesus. You haven't deserved it, you couldn't earn it, but he has freely given it at the cost of his son. And Paul says, so grace to you, saints. Now every Christian, because we know ourselves, every Christian delights in that grace. That's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And every Christian delights in that reality, but it's not only grace to you. In verse 2, but it is grace to you and peace. The old Hebrew word shalom means peace, but it also includes all, every blessing that flows from God's grace. Paul's going to spend the rest of this chapter, Ephesians 1 from verse 3 to 23, laying out for us the blessings that we have received, that we have inherited as saints because of the grace that God has shown to us in Christ. You know, when we think of peace, we often think of those words, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But peace is not simply the cessation of war, or the ending of hostilities on the earth or in the world. You see, in Paul's vocabulary, peace means, first and foremost, peace with God, which means we are no longer under his condemnation. Instead, because we are in Christ, we are under his fatherly acceptance. We have peace with him and, and peace with ourselves because our sin has been dealt with. The penalty for our sin has been dealt with. And when you think about eternity and heaven and hell, that is real peace. This is the peace which means we can have fullness and satisfaction of life in this world, no matter what the circumstance. Peace with God is exceedingly precious to everyone who, who knows it or has ever experienced it. And notice that Paul makes a point to say that the peace and grace we receive are from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, there is only one way to experience this peace because this is peace that rests in God himself. And there's one way to God. It was Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man or woman, no one will ever get to God except through me. The only way to experience the grace and the peace of God is in Christ Jesus. So if we think about this for just a moment, I mean, do you value God's grace and peace above everything else in your life? Are you actively seeking your satisfaction, the fullness of your life through your relationship with the Lord Jesus? Or I, I could put it another way. One of the key words in chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians is rich and riches. For example, if you have your Bibles, you can see verse 18 there. We read of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, we read of God being rich in mercy. Chapter 3, we read of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again in chapter 3, of God's glorious riches. Then in the second half of the letter, chapters 4 to 6, one of the key words is the word walk, as in how we walk, how we live this life. In chapter 4, twice, we are told, to walk worthy of the calling we have received. We are told that as Christians, we must not walk as the Gentiles do. And then three times in chapter 5, we read that we must walk in love, that we must walk as children of light, that we must be careful how we walk. So Paul stresses God's riches in the first half and our walking through this life in the second. And in that context, we see one of the challenges that Paul lays down. Are we walking? Are we living like spiritually wealthy people that we are? Or are we walking like spiritual paupers? Do we walk as if we have been given great riches, greater riches than will ever be conceived by any normal human being? Or do we walk as if we are wondering where our next meal is going to come from? Do our lives, our decisions, our witness reflect our actual situation of being in Christ? And are we walking like the children of light, like members of the body of Christ called and made holy by God's own workmanship? You see, Paul says that that is what you are. It may not seem so at times, like it may not seem so, especially if you're lying in pain in a hospital bed or you're brokenhearted over some great loss or maybe even on the verge of stumbling into some great temptation and sin. You see, Paul is urging the saints of heaven to remember who they are and to live like the person that you really are. You're privileged, you're honored, you're loved. You are immeasurably rich in God's grace and peace. You are a saint, you're a member of Christ's church, which means you have eternal joy to look forward to. Saint, child of God, child of light. That's you. That's me. Those exalted titles and honors actually belong to us. Therefore, Paul says, live worthy of the calling you have received. Walk like the extraordinarily wealthy man or woman that Jesus Christ has made you to be. And do remember that as we look at this, that this is Paul, the apostle, speaking directly to you on God's behalf, speaking directly to the saints, 
the faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit we would not love this world or the things of this world, but that we would set our hearts on heavenly things, on the grace that you provided, on the peace that you give, and on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, if you'll join me in singing our last number, Amazing Grace. It's a new version, which I'm sure everyone probably knows by now. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 